today we are in Proverbs chapter 3 once again, and let's pray and then we'll dive into our time in the Word. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your Word. We thank you that you are the way maker, that you are working constantly. And we thank you, Lord, that your Word is powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, that it has the ability to transform and encourage and challenge. And I pray today that your word would do all of that for all of us here who are in this room and those who are watching online. We want to just invite you through the Holy Spirit right now to use your word to dissect, to transform, and to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in the midst of a study in the book of Proverbs this summer that we have called Wisdom for Life, where we are taking just a deep look into the subject of wisdom. And we started this study by looking at the subject found here in the book of Proverbs of the fear of the Lord. And the reason why we did that is because we spent three weeks on this, because in Proverbs we're told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we want to learn about wisdom. We want to know what wisdom for life looks like. It starts with, you know, having a right view of the fear of the Lord. So if you missed any of those studies, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to them. You can find them on our website. But then last week, we went here to Proverbs chapter 3 and spent our time focusing on verses 5 and 6, where we're told to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not to our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. And so we looked at that. We kind of did a deep dive into that, that subject of trusting in the Lord. And today we're back in Proverbs 3 looking at wisdom and what it looks like and how it operates in various areas of our life. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26, in the ESV version, it says this, Ponder the path of your feet, and then all of your ways will be sure. Ponder. In other words, pay attention to how you're walking. Pay attention to where you're walking in your relationship with Jesus. And that really is the way of wisdom, is you're paying attention to your relationship with the Lord. And here in Proverbs chapter 3, the Holy Spirit inspires the writer of this book to present a pattern before us. And this pattern is very, very interesting because what the writer does is he puts forth an instruction that is then followed by an incentive. And today we want to look at six instructions that we see laid out for us in verses 1 through 12. And each one of these instructions is followed by an incentive. But I want you to note that these, this isn't a list of things that we are to do, but it's really a list that God wants us to be. It's something that he's wanting to work within our hearts. And so I pray that our hearts would be open today to just receive what the Holy Spirit would speak to us. And if you're taking notes, here's instruction number one, build your life on the right foundation. We see this in verse one. He says, my son... Do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. That's the instruction. Here's the incentive or the promise. For length of days and long life and peace, they will add to you. Now this really reminds me, this instruction to build your life 
on the right foundation. It reminds me of what the parable that Jesus shared in Matthew chapter 7. It was the parable of the builders. You're familiar with this story. Jesus said there were two builders, and each these guys, two men were building their house down by the ocean. And he said this was the problem or the situation. One of the men, he built his house on the sand, and the other man, he built his house on the rock. The man who built his house on the sand, Jesus called the foolish man. The man who built his house on the rock, he called the wise man. And he said, this is the, the, the problem. The man who built his house on the sand, when the storm came, when the winds blew and the waves came crashing, and they always do, Some of you right now find yourself in the midst of a storm. Storms are a part of life. He says, when the storm came, the man whose house was built on the sand, his house crumbled because it was built on an unsure, faulty, weak foundation. But the other man, the man who built his house on the rock, when the storm came and blew against his house, it stood intact because it was built on a firm foundation. And then Jesus defined the difference between these two men in this way. He said, the the foolish man is the one who hears my word and he doesn't apply it. He's the man who hears the word of God. It goes into his ears, it goes into his head, but it never circulates down into his heart and becomes a part of his life. And that man, his life is void of peace. His life is void of stability because his life is being built on on a faulty, unsure foundation. But the wise man is the one, the one who built his house on the rock, is the one who hears my word and he puts it into practice. He hears it, it goes into his ears, into his head, but translates or flows down into his heart and becomes a part of his life. And Jesus said, that man, when the storm comes, his house stays intact. His heart is full of peace and assurance because he knows that his life is being built on the right foundation. So instruction number one, build your life on the right foundation by not forgetting his word, but but keeping his commands, allowing God's word to sink into your heart. And this is the promise for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Here's instruction number two, live a life that is marked by love and faithfulness. Look at verse three. He says, let not mercy and truth forsake you. In the ESV version, it says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, the key word in this phrase, the key words are mercy and truth. And we've noted already that those two words really are the embodiment of who Jesus was when he was here on planet Earth. For we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of Christ, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, and this is what he was full of. He was full of grace and truth. Those two things really were the mark of who Jesus was. His life was marked by being full of grace and truth. And that was seen, I think, the most in how he treated others, 
It was seen in the stands that he took concerning various things that his life was marked by the perfect blending of these two things of grace and truth. And the writer of Proverbs, the instruction that he gives to us is let mercy and truth not forsake you. And we could sum that up in this way. Learn to treat others the way that Jesus has treated you. But I want you to catch that this is more than just a learned behavior. Because notice what he says. He says, let not mercy and truth forsake you, but bind them. Bind mercy and truth around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. This is describing that this blending of mercy and truth or steadfast love and faithfulness are being etched into the very fiber of your being. They're being etched into the very core of who you are as a follower of Christ. And that is going to be seen the most in how you treat others. That you're treating others the way that Jesus treats you. You know, when I was a high school pastor many, many years ago, I had a friend who was doing high school ministry at that same time at another church. And he had this this kid in his group that was just trouble. This kid was always getting into trouble, always causing trouble. He was just, you know, kind of a rebellious young guy. And my friend got to the point where he just had gotten so frustrated and so just fed up with this young guy that he decided he was going to kick him out of the youth group. And he notified his pastor of his intention. And his pastor said to him, he said, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been rebellious in your walk with Jesus? My friend was like, yeah. And then his pastor said, you know, I've known you for a really long time, and you've been a knucklehead. I mean, you, you've had your times. You've had your own time, you know, of, of uh, giving the Lord trouble. And he said, did he ever kick you out of his family? And my friend was like, no. He's like, well, then you need to give this kid, you know, you need to give him some more patience. You know, can you imagine? Can you imagine if Jesus responded to us the way that we tend to respond to others? Can you imagine how, how crazy that would be? In fact, let me ask you this question. And, and here, I want some participation. How, how many of you have given Jesus reason to be disappointed with you? Okay. How many of you? Raise your hand. How many of you this week have given Jesus reason to be disappointed with you? Yeah, all of us. And yet he is so patient with us. And so when the writer says here, bind mercy and truth around your neck, he's saying treat others the way that Jesus treats you. How does that happen? How do we learn to respond in that type of way? It happens the more time you spend with Jesus. Because the more time you spend with Jesus, you know what happens? You become like him. You begin to see others with his heart and his mind. You begin to see situations the way that Jesus sees those situations. So here's the instruction. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Here's the incentive. Here's the promise. Verse 4. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. We're told in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, 
this about Jesus, that Jesus grew in favor with God and man. That was the mark of Jesus' life. That he was full of grace and truth, and because of that, he grew in favor with God and man. We're told in the Gospels that Jesus, he was called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. The sinners were literally drawn to Jesus. They enjoyed his company, even though when he was with them, he never did anything that was compromising, but at the same time, he wasn't condemning of their sin. And the Bible tells us that the reason is is he saw them as being like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion upon them. He had patience with them. Imagine if we responded to those who are far from Christ with that same type of compassion, that beautiful combination of grace and truth where we're not condemning sin, but at the same time, with the help of God's grace, we're, we're not condoning sin either. That we're loving the sinner. We're not condoning the sin, but we're loving the sinner and being gracious. Sinners love to be around Jesus. Think about that. Think about how, how kind of ironic that is. But you know who didn't like Jesus? It was the legalists. It was the Pharisees. It was the religious people, the ones who called sinners unclean and Gentiles dogs, who, whose only use was that they would fuel the fire of hell. Those were the ones who didn't like Jesus. Now, I want you to think for a moment, the crowd, your, your crowd, your sphere of influence, those who are closest to you, what are they more like? Are they legalists? Are they Pharisees always pointing their fingers at others, always pointing out the faults in others? Or are they people who are struggling? Are they people who are, you know, just going through different difficulties and struggling in their their walk with the Lord. I think that that will be a good indication if you are walking in this, this combination of mercy and truth. So instruction number two, live a life of steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is the incentive. You will find favor with both God and man. Here's instruction number three. Don't be wishy-washy in following Jesus. You know, I love people who are strong in their convictions, even when I don't agree with them. I admire them. I admire those who will take a a bold stand on something that they really, really believe in. I don't think anybody really enjoys people that are wishy-washy. Think about if your spouse was wishy-washy on your wedding day when you were exchanging your vows. If he said... I promise that I will love you always, except when my team is playing, (laughs) or except when the diapers need changing, or except when the surf is up. Some of you ladies are going, I'm married to that guy. (laughs) Hopefully not. Or well, you guys, what if if your wife said, hey, I promise to yield to your leadership except when it doesn't line up with my plans. Some of the guys are going, I'm married to that woman. (laughs) Hopefully not. I mean, do you want your boss to be wishy-washy when it comes to 
a raise or a promotion? Do you want him to be like, you know, well, concerning this raise, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, you know? No, you want him to be firm. You don't want him to be wishy-washy. Well, the Lord doesn't want us to be wishy-washy in our following of Christ. So here's the instruction, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's the instruction. And we are not going to spend a lot of time on this because we looked at it last time. But I want you to know, he's talking here about total trust. Trust in the Lord with what? All of your heart. With all of you. And the reason we noted last week that we do that is because of his credentials, his proven credentials that we have for us in the pages of Scripture, that we have thousands of years of God's faithfulness faithfulness in the lives of his people. And he calls us to trust in him with all of our our hearts because his track record is proven. It reminds me of, of a man who during the winter... He was living in a state where it gets really, really cold. And he comes to this river that's frozen and he needs to cross it, but he doesn't know how thick the ice is. So he's literally crawling out on his hands and his knees. And when he gets to the middle of that river, he suddenly hears this loud sound coming behind him. And when he looks back, it's a man driving a wagon that's being pulled by four horses and they're coming onto the ice at full bore. You see, the man driving the the wagon was a local, and he knew how thick the ice was. He crossed it all the time. He had the experience of knowing that it was thick enough for him to go across it like it was a road. You know, a lot of Christians are like the man down on all fours, creeping along, way too cautious, because their trust in the Lord is half-hearted. You know what? wishy-washy, half-hearted following of Jesus does, it has escape routes. It has plan Bs. It's the idea that, hey, if the Lord doesn't come through in my timing, I've got an escape route. I've got a plan B. If he doesn't come through, I I, I have a a plan in place that I'm going to put into motion. But trusting in Jesus with all of our heart means that we don't have any escape routes. I love what A.W. Tozer wrote, that great scholar. He said, pseudo-faith always arranges escape routes in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. I love that. So trusting in the Lord with all of your heart means that you don't have any escape routes. And then he says, and lean not to your own understanding." Because of his proven track record, because I don't have any escape routes, I'm all in. And because of that, I'm going to acknowledge the Lord. And we noted last week that phrase, that word acknowledge, means I'm going to seek to know the Lord, to know and perceive his will in this situation. 
I'm going to seek to be tuned into His voice, not the voice of culture, not the voice of circumstances, not the voice of my friends, or even my own emotions. I'm going to allow my life to be tuned in to His Word so I know I'm going to seek to know Him in all of my ways. That's the instruction. Here's the incentive. And He will direct your paths. He'll make your paths straight. Now the fourth instruction really is the Natural follow-up to that, and it's this, to be teachable. We see this in verse 7. Notice, he says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. You know, there are two ways to learn. There's two ways to grow. One way is by following instructions. The other way is by learning from our mistakes. It's, It's what we call the school of hard knocks. Let me ask you this question. How many of you are instruction manual people? Show of hands. You're you're the type of person, you know, you're working on something and you break out the instruction manual and you read it from cover to cover to figure out how to do this. How many of you are instruction manual people? A lot more than last service, but still not that many. How many of you are the person that, hey, you know, I don't need the instruction manual. I'm going to figure this out on my own. How many of you are that person? Okay, a lot more. We have a lot of unteachable people in this church (laughs) oh man crazy you know our society today is full of know-it-alls and the problem with our soundbite culture today is that we have people who know a lot or a little about a lot of things Because they watch a three-minute YouTube video and they think they're an expert, you know? That's the culture that we live in today. But we're called to be teachable. In other words, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to learn from people who think differently about things than you do. Don't be afraid to learn from those who have gone before you. We need to be teachable. And here's the incentive, verse 8. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Again, class participation. Who here has broken a bone because you were doing something that somebody told you not to do? Who here has had that happen to you? Okay, several of you. First service, there's a guy in the back with both hands up. Like, you know, that was me, you know. Or who here has been burned? Somebody said to you, hey, don't play with fire because you're going to get burned. Don't touch the stove because you're going to get burned. And you ignored that. How many of you have done that? Okay, yes. The Bible tells us that we need to be teachable. If we want to have health and we want to have, you know, not have broken bones, we need to learn to be teachable. And you know what is at the heart of being teachable? Listen, it's humility. It's humility. It's a heart that says and admits, I don't have all the answers. I need somebody to teach me. It's been said that good leaders are learners. They're willing to learn and they're willing to grow. And those who are walking in wisdom will have a teachable spirit. And because of that, they won't have to learn things the hard way. And they won't have their life marked by the pain of learning things the hard way. And, and you know what is, is interesting about that is when you're learning things the hard way, 
you're not the only one that experiences pain. People around you get hurt too. You've experienced that. You, it, because of your foolishness, it affects those that are the closest to you. And so the instruction that we're given is to be teachable. And the promise is it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Here's instruction number five. Invest in the kingdom of God. Look at verse nine. He says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all of your increase. The Hebrew word honor means to treat the Lord as weighty. You know, Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. The thing that we treasure in life carries the most weight weight in our lives. They get the, the brunt of all of our time, attention, and resources. The writer of Proverbs is telling us, make Jesus and his kingdom your number one treasure. He mentions the first fruits. The first fruits were the best of the harvest. In Exodus 23, verse 19, it says, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. How do we honor the Lord from our wealth? By giving him our first and giving him our very best. But too often we have the tendency to give God our leftovers, right? It's like the farmer whose cow birthed two new calves. And that Sunday when he went to church, he was talking to his pastor and he said, Pastor, my, my cow just birthed two new calves. And when I sell these two calves, I'm going to give the proceeds of one of them to the Lord. I'm going to give the proceeds to the church. Well, the following week, the pastor saw the farmer and asked him, he said, hey, how's your calves doing? And he said, Pastor, I've got some bad news for you. The Lord's calf died. <laughs> but that's so often the way that it is, right? It's the Lord's calf that always is the one that dies. I love these words from Ray Ortland. He said, wisdom is saying, make the Lord famous and prominent by means of your wealth. Use your money to increase his prestige in your world. It's interesting how many people spend so much time and energy building a kingdom for themselves here that they end up leaving behind. If you've ever been to Europe and driven around Europe, you see these huge estates that are empty. You drive by them and it's like, wow, but there's nobody living in them anymore. That Some family built this estate with all of their wealth and then they died and they left it behind and now all it is is a, a big museum for people to drive by and go, wow, look how big that castle is. Reminds me of the farmer that Jesus talked about, the rich farmer. And this guy had such a bumper crop one year that he had to literally tear down his barn and build a bigger barn to house his harvest. And once he got it all harvested and all stuffed into his barn, he sat back and he thought, man, I am set for life. But that night the Lord appeared to him and said, you know what, you're a fool. Because this night, your very life is required of you and you are not rich toward God. 
You know what? When we are investing in the kingdom, we become rich toward God. You build up your spiritual riches before God by investing time and resources and heart and energy into his kingdom. And here's the incentive, verse 10. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now I want you to note, This is not saying that we give in order to get. That is never the motivation scripturally. However, this is a reminder that God's capacity to give far exceeds our capacity to receive. Jesus put it this way in Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. When Jesus' disciples were worried about their provision, Jesus said this, guys, guys, seek first. That's the key phrase. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, they will be added unto you. You could translate that this way. Make Jesus your treasure and your life and heart will be satisfied. You're going to have what you need. And that leads us to finally instruction number six, that we need to learn from adversity. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. You know, adversity is a part of life. It's part of living in a fallen world. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. It's a given. comes with living in this world and in this life. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So adversity is common to all, but sometimes the adversity that we face comes directly from the Lord. It's part of his chastening. It's part of his discipline. It's part of his correction in our lives. And when we are facing correction from the Lord, we need to not run from it. The writer of Proverbs says, don't despise it, but we need to embrace it. We need to learn from it. You know, when I was playing basketball in high school, my freshman year, our coach wanted our team to be this kind of run and gun, you know, type of team. And so we ran a lot in practice and it was brutal. And none of us liked it at, at, at first because, I mean, he just ran us into the ground. And, you know, every single practice, especially leading up to the season, it was like we're just running laps and running sprints constantly. But you know what happened once the season started we were in amazing shape and we never got tired we were running through everybody when when basketball season was over and I went into baseball I was so fast and so quick and I stole more bases that year than I ever had before so when the following year came around and it was time for basketball practice and basketball training I actually looked forward to the running that we were going to do because I knew what it was going to produce And that's the idea behind the Lord's chastening, behind the adversity that he allows to come into our lives is where we don't despise it, but we embrace it because we know that it's he's using it for something. He's using it to make us more like Christ. 
Our Father loves us and He delights in us and because of that, He allows adversity to come into our lives because He wants us to learn how to run against the wind. He wants us to learn how to row against the wind. He wants to build up within us a spiritual endurance as we learn how to follow Christ through the difficult times. So we need to understand that the correction in and of itself is really the incentive. There's no incentive in this verse because it's put right forth there that that God who is a good father who loves us and delights in us because he's committed to our growth. That's the incentive. He corrects us. He disciplines us and his discipline literally proves that we are his kids. Because whom the Lord loves, this is the incentive, he disciplines. In fact, if you're here today and you're living in rebellion and you've been in living in your rebellion for quite some time and you're not experiencing any discipline, it's a good indication. It's not that God doesn't care what you're doing, but it could be a good indication that you're really not a child of God because God is a father, a good father, who's going to discipline and chastise his children. There was a man who was trying to take the blade off of his lawnmower so he could sharpen it. And he tipped his lawnmower over. He got the biggest wrench he could find, and he put it on the bolt, and he kept trying to turn it, and it wouldn't turn. He got a pipe and put it onto the wrench so he could get some more leverage, and it still wouldn't turn. So then he got a big rock, and he started pounding it on the pipe, and it still wouldn't budge. And his neighbor on the other side of the fence is hearing all this banging going on, and he looks over the fence. He goes, what are you doing? And he says, I'm trying to get this bolt off of my lawnmower so I can sharpen my blade, but it won't budge. And that's when his neighbor friend said to him, you know, the threads on that go the opposite direction. And when he turned it that way, it came off easily. Can I ask you this question? Are you forcing your life today in the wrong direction? Or you feel like it's just not budging? Can I encourage you? Welcome the correction of your heavenly Father who delights in you. Who loves you as his child. And you know what? Your life will start making sense. And it will start flowing in the right direction. So we see here the writer of Hebrews, or the writer of Proverbs, he lays out for us these six instructions. These six things that God really wants to, to become a part of our life. That we would wa- that walking in wisdom is walking in this manner. And then he gives us these six promises, these six blessings, these six incentives that will flow out of that. And in this we see the blessings and the benefits of walking in wisdom. And then the writer sums this all up with this statement, this little paragraph in verses 13 through 18. We're not going to look at it. I just want to read through it. Notice what he says. Happy is the man or the woman who finds wisdom and the man who gains in understanding. For her, wisdom's proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies. In other words, this is what he's saying. Wisdom carries with it eternal value. The riches of this life, they fade. You can't take it with you. Gold is the asphalt in heaven. That's how irrelevant it is in heaven. Rubies, they fade. But wisdom has an eternal value. 
value. You get wisdom in your life and it goes and it carries forth into how you are going to spend and enjoy eternity with the Lord as you learn to walk in wisdom now. And all things, he says, that you may desire cannot compare with her. Nothing in this life that we can desire because nothing truly satisfies compares with learning how to walk in wisdom. Verse 16, length of days is in her right hand. In other words, quality of life, confidence and assurance. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. And then verse 18 is really interesting. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who retain her. She is a tree of life. It says that in every translation. And those of you who are Bible students, that should take you back to the book of Genesis. And there in the Garden of Eden, we're told that there was the tree of life. And I think what, this, what the writer is telling us here is that as we learn to walk in wisdom by walking in the fear of the Lord, trusting in the Lord with all of our heart, giving ourselves to the things that, that are important to God, that it's the closest that we can get in this life to the beginning. It's the closest that we can get in this life to the life that God really intends for us to live. That quality of life, that eternal life, that everlasting life that comes from living in a relationship with Jesus. We embark the tree of life. It takes us back to the beginning of what God intended for man. And so we need to be those who, in our hearts, we're committed. We're in our hearts, we're like, Lord, I want to walk in wisdom. And I want to encourage you today. As we went through these various six instructions, uh, these six things that God is wanting there to be in our lives, if you're in a place where you're like, you know, I, I just, I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not trusting in him. I'm, I'm, I'm not a teachable person. I want to encourage you today, before you walk out of here, don't be the foolish builder who lets it go into your ears and into your head, but not into your heart. I want to encourage you today, before we leave today, is just you take that area of your life and you present that to Jesus today. And you tell him today, Lord, I want you to work this into me. And he'll begin that work in you today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for what you've laid out for us here concerning walking in wisdom. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would ponder the path of our feet today. That we can, we'd consider, truly consider today, how we are walking. The manner in which we are walking with you. Where we are going in our relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would leave here today with a commitment with a desire in our hearts to be those who are allowing you to work these things out into our hearts that we would experience wisdom for living. We thank you, Lord. We praise you for your word in our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together.